Good morning. Let's turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We're continuing in our study in the book of Corinthians, and we now come to a chapter about um, answering another question that the Corinthians had. They had written a letter to Paul previously, and now this is another question, and Paul is giving his response. So let's uh, dive into it, and let's take a look at verse 1 of chapter 8. So now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of the things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in this world, and that there is no other God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet there is one God, the Father, of whom all are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. However, there is not in everyone that knowledge, for some with consciousness of the idol until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. But food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. But beware, lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge, shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? But when you thus sin against your brethren, the brethren, and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if, my, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat. I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So our passage today deals with the subject of eating meat offered to idols. In American culture, it's not as prevalent, and it wouldn't be an issue that you would normally face here in America, but I also don't want to take that and belittle the issue because it is still an important issue, and because some of you may still face that. But what is important is to not only look at the topic of meat offered to idols, but also the principle that the Lord is teaching us behind it. This passage in this scripture here is just as relevant to us today as it was to the Corinthians. So since this, this topic of eating meat offered to idols is not that familiar to us today, let's, let me explain to you what, what the issue is here, what the church was dealing with. As we mentioned before, Corinth was in a city... It was a city known for its immorality. One of the main fascinations of the city was the temples, the various temples that they had. And in these temples, the Corinthians worshipped their many gods and would hold feasts to their gods. During these ceremonies, the worshippers would bring out meat and offer it as a burnt offering to the idol. And then they would take the remaining meat and distribute it to the guests. Some of that meat would also be taken and distributed to the local meat market and the uh, local Costco and Safeway, and it would be available to purchase. 
So during the festi- and during these uh, these worship ceremonies, there would be um, all kinds of things happening, but it would involve immoral activity, including temple prostitutes and other deviant sexual behavior. So the Church of Corinth sent a letter to Paul and asked this question: Should a Christian participate in eating a meat eating meat at a festival? Should a Christian buy meat from a marketplace that has been offered to an idol? Is it okay? Or should I even eat meat that was, if it's been offered to an idol at someone's home? As believers, we are free in Christ. We are free to participate in activities and events that are not specifically forbidden in God's word. But are there limits to my freedom? Or am I able to do as I please? And now Paul is going to address the heart of the issue that the the Corinthians had. And he starts off in verse 1. He says that we, we all know that we all have knowledge. We know that we all have knowledge, but knowledge is not everything. Now, Paul isn't saying that knowledge is bad. It is good to know spiritual truth and to have a deeper understanding of God's word and to understand his will for our lives. Knowledge is good, but knowledge can lead to pride. It says that knowledge puffs up. Most importantly, our actions and our attitudes shouldn't end on knowledge, but it should be mingled with love. He almost says, at the beginning in verse 1, sarcastically, we know that we all have knowledge. In the, in the city of Corinth, it was a, knowledge was a premium. They focused on wisdom and intellect and philosophy. They loved that thing. The, the, the Corinthians loved those. And the believers at Corinth had knowledge. Now, they were given a and a, an incredible amount of knowledge as a spiritual gift. So they, they possessed knowledge. And in, um, in 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 5 through 9, um, Peter addresses this issue. And it, and it talks about the, uh, the, the believer in their, in their faith. And it says, But also for this reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. And to virtue, knowledge. And the Corinthians would stop there. Knowledge, that's it. That's, we've arrived. We have knowledge. But Peter says, continue on. To add to knowledge, self-control. To self-control, perseverance. And to per- perseverance, godliness. To godliness, brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, love. And so that the the end result is not knowledge is not the end result is not the is not the uh, what we should be ultimately seeking after completely it's that we need love knowledge is what puffs up but love is what edifies and later on in this book paul writes to the corinthians in chapter 13 the famous passage on love he says though i speak with the tongue of men and angels but I have not love i have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mystery and all knowledge, if I don't have love, I am nothing. So even if you knew it all, even if it was possible to comprehend everything in the world, you knew every subject possible, you knew every doctrine, you knew every matter in life, without love, all the knowledge I have, all the knowledge I possess amounts to a big fat zero. I have failed to understand how to use my knowledge 
and it's to use knowledge with love. Love is the key. Knowledge is still good, but I must apply it correctly with love. But they go both, but they do both go together. You can't have one without the other. And in verse 2, he says, And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing, yet as he not to know. The problem with some is that they had all knowledge. Paul is saying, you think that you know it all, but you really don't. You haven't begun to understand that you need knowledge. with knowledge you need to have love. And so you really don't know all things. And realizing how much we don't know can be very humbling. Um, let's take a look at our universe. Look at the pictures that we have here. Think about how vast the universe is. We want to say that we you know, understand our solar system. We, we've explored it. We've seen, we've sent you know, a man to the moon. We've, we've captured great pictures of the whole universe or parts of the universe. But in reality, the scientists still think today, and this is probably an, even an, um, an over-exaggeration, is they the amount that they understand or that they've discovered is about 4%. 96% of it, they don't know. They don't have a clue what it is or what, it, what it's, um, we don't see it or we don't understand it. 96% of it. It's probably a lot more than that. <laughs> probably a lot higher than that. Sometimes we think we know it all, but then we, the more we know, the more you know and the more we learn, we, the more we realize we don't know how much we don't know. What the Corinthians were missing was love. They thought they knew everything. They thought they had figured it out, but they were missing the points. And as a contrast to this, he says in verse 3, but if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Paul is saying that if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. He, he is saying that we don't have to just have, we don't have head knowledge about God. We don't just know factually who he is and that he's, he exists. And that, but we, when we actually love God, there's something real. When we must demonstrate love, then we are known by him. And this, this statement is kind of, kind of remarkable also to think about when you think about God knowing us personally, that we love God and he, we are known by him. Not just in a, you know, he knows our name, and, but we are, we are known. He, there's a personal, intimate kind of way that he knows us, not a distant, far away knowledge. He is an all-knowing God who, who knows everything. He's created the universe. He, he has all infinite knowledge, yet he, he knew who we were. He knew that we were dirty, rotten sinners. With all of the knowledge that he had, he could have just said, well, well, let's just wipe them off the face of the planet. But instead, he had love, and he came to this earth and sent his son to die for our sins. He showed us love in order that we may know him. Love is the key. What a remarkable God he is. So we have knowledge and we have love. But, so let's look at the truth behind idols. And that's what Paul spends time on next. Let's take a first look at the knowledge aspect of it. This is what the Corinthians so proudly knew. And Paul readily states the truth about idols. He says quite simply in verse 4, We all know that an idol is nothing in this world, and that there is no other God but one. We know that idols can't talk. We know that... They can't actually do anything. There's no one home. But in Psalm 7, or Psalm 115, 45 says this, there are, there, 
their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. If we were to look at an idol, it's factually, it's a piece of rock. It's a piece of metal or a piece of wood, nothing more. Yes, there are, and Paul goes on and says that, you know, there are religions and people who recognize them as so-called gods and lords, but we know the truth. We know that there is one God, and there is no other God. There is God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, whom all things exist. But the pagans worship many gods. They had a God for everything. They had a God for the sun and the moon and the stars and water, life, the goddess of love, and on and on. But we have one God in whom all things exist. Our God is the creator and sustainer of all things. Most of the Corinthians understood this truth. So on one side, what one side was saying, it's just a rock. There isn't anything special about it. An idol doesn't mean anything because there's only one God. So don't get worked worked up about eating something that's been offered to a rock. It doesn't affect the meat in any way. So just go ahead and eat it. And if we stop there and look at what Paul is saying, we could say that he is absolutely right. An idol is nothing in this world. What what he's saying is true. So Paul, can't you just tell all these other believers to stop making this an issue? But there is another side to it. On the other side, not all believers, and he says in verse 7, not all believers have this understanding. Not all possess the same knowledge that you have about meat offered to idols. The problem is that some, with the consciousness of the idol, until now, they eat it as a thing offered to the idol, and their their conscience being weak is defiled. Paul is saying saying to one group of believers, Wait a minute, not everyone knows everything that you know. Their ties to idolatry are too fresh. Maybe they're a new Christian and they just came out of idolatry. They don't want to associate with anything in their previous pagan ways. And his conscience is telling him not to eat the meat. And if he did, he would be going against his conscience and violating his conscience. Imagine there was a man named Steve. And Steve lived in Corinth, and Corinth, and he grew up with his family, and they would visit the local temple frequently throughout the week. They, they held many feasts, and they had celebrations, and they went to worship their gods and offer meat sacrifices to their gods. Then they would take together a portion of the meat and eat it as a family. It became a way of Steve's life. As he grew older, he began to participate in dancing and idol worship as an older man, And he would attend the temple in order to please God, his gods, and participate in the drinking festivities and immorality. Then one one day, a man came to Corinth to visit his city, and he learned that idolatry was a sin, and learned about one God, the one true God. And he heard the good news about Jesus, who came and died for his sins. And that he could be forgiven. He could be washed and clean. And so Steve put his faith and trust 
in Jesus Christ. He was washed. He felt cleansed from his old ways. And he went home and got rid of all of his idols. He completely rid his house of all the idols and stopped coming to the temple festivities. Then he began getting connected with the local church and began spending time with believers. Then Steve finds out that other believers are eating meat offered to idols, and he's confused, and he's wondering why they're doing such a thing. Because the lifestyle that he came out of, him seeing other believers eating meat, to him it would mean that he's participating in the idol worship. It's all too familiar to him. His conscience would be defiled, but and he truly believed it was wrong. And he feels guilty for eating. If he does, eating the meat reminds him so vividly of his former ways in idolatry. When we look at it this way, it becomes less about who's right and who's wrong and more about having compassion on the weaker brother. Not everyone will be at the knowledge, the same level of knowledge that you are at. And he goes on, in verse 8, Paul says, and, and says, truthfully, it, it really doesn't matter what we eat. Food in and of itself is neutral, spiritually speaking. We don't gain extra favor from God from eating meat or not eating meat or eating certain foods. If I, if I choose to become a vegetarian, because I have a conviction about that, if I choose to become a vegetarian, I'm not a better Christian from abstaining from meat. And neither on the other side is someone better from, uh, from eating the meat. They're, they're, they're spiritually neutral. It doesn't draw us closer to God. It doesn't bring us away from God. And that's what Paul is saying there in verse 8. We aren't better or we aren't worse. But here's the, here's the, here's the main issue. There's a danger with our Christian liberty. There's, there's dangers or there's warnings. And this is what Paul addresses in the last couple of verses till the end. In verse 9, there's dangers. Ben Roethlisberger is a quarterback for the Pittsburgh Steelers. He became one of the youngest Super Bowl winning quarterbacks in the NFL history. In 2005, he had an interview with an ESPN reporter that asked Ben, can you explain your decision for riding a motorcycle without a helmet? His response was, I don't wear a helmet because I don't have to. It's not the law. If it was the law, I definitely would have one on every time. But it's not the law and I don't have to. You're just more free when you're out there with no helmet on. Ben was absolutely right. In Pennsylvania, it's not mandatory for motorcycle riders to wear a helmet. Yet most riders, even in Pennsylvania, would, even though it's not mandatory, would most likely wear a helmet because they understand the dangers behind riding a bike without a helmet. It would be unthinkable to ride up and down the busy freeways in the, in the crowded suburbs and streets, downtown areas, without a helmet. And most riders would agree with this because if you had an accident, accident the results could be tragic. Yet Ben knew he had the knowledge, he knew what he could or couldn't do. And since it wasn't the law, he wasn't going to go without a helmet. But with that liberty, there's a certain danger 
behind to himself and to others. Likewise, the Corinthians knew that they had a certain freedom to eat meat offered to idols. But they didn't understand the potential dangers behind their freedom that they had. They didn't understand the freedom or the dangers that their freedom had on others. And they were setting themselves up for an accident. As a Christian, we have many liberties. We have the liberty to eat meat offered to an idol, but when we exercise our freedom, we must take into consideration those who might stumble. There are many liberties in the Christian life. There are freedoms we have in Christ. The Bible does not specifically, these are areas that the Bible does not specifically forbid or speak against. So we're not talking about areas of sin. We talked about murder, that's wrong. That's not a liberty we have stealing something from, from somebody else. We're not talking about areas where the Bible is clear on. We're talking about areas where the Bible does not specifically say one way, the, one way or the other. And there have been debates over the centuries and over the years about different topics, whether Christians should participate in this or that. And, should, and the list goes on. For example, should Christians watch movies in theaters? Should Christians work on Sundays? Should you own a TV? Is it okay to drink alcohol? Is it okay to play cards? There are many questions in the area of a Christian life that the Bible does not specifically answer. The Bible does lay down principles for some areas, and it has biblical principles to follow. But in some areas, the Bible is silent. So how do you decide what you should do or shouldn't do? Well, some would prefer, why doesn't the church just you know, make a stance on this and say, these are the sins and this is not okay, this is not okay, this is not okay, and these are the okay list. So as long as I follow the, don't do the bad list and I do the good list, then I'm okay. It would be easier if I had just a list of rules. But that's, that's not, um, that doesn't allow the spirit of God to lead in someone's life. And it, it also puts us back under the law. It puts us back into rules and legalism. And it could become that my spiritual um, maturity depends on if I'm following this list of rules or not. And so that doesn't work either. But on the other hand, the person that has, you know, we're free in Christ, I'm free to do as I please. And then they take their liberty, it's like, you can't tell me what to do because I'm free in Christ to do these things. And so you have two extremes, and both extremes are not right. There needs to be a middle ground. It says in verse 9, but beware, lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. I want to look at three different areas, three different ways in which our liberty can be dangerous. Number one, my liberty can become a stumbling block to others. Although we have liberty in various areas, we must not abuse our liberty and become a stumbling block to another believer. Now, a stumbling block is not just something that offends somebody. It is an act that leads another person to go against their conscience that they believe is wrong and to commit sin. So, for example, let's say I went out to go get my ears pierced and my nose pierced. You might be offended by that. You might not be okay with that. But it would not be a stumbling block to you if you were not also encouraged to go out and get your ears pierced and nose pierced if it was against your conscience. So it has to do with your conscience. 
Paul then explains how someone could be assembled by you. He says in verse 10, it says, For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? So the second thing that we need to be careful of is my actions may encourage a weak believer to sin. The questions we could ask ourselves is, is this an area that someone you know is weak in? Do I know that this person is struggling in this area? Would my actions lead this person into sin? And we can prevent this in a number of practical ways. To be sensitive to our fellow believers. To, to understand maybe where, where they came from. Where they, the backgrounds, the things that they struggle with. To understand their lifestyle or, or their former lifestyle. For instance, are they a recovering alcoholic? Then don't take them out to lunch to a brewery or to a, a bar. Don't have a drink around them. The atmosphere could remind them of their former life and seeing you drink would be a stumbling block. They would cause them to go against their conscience and to fall into sin. They might see your liberty to drink in a, a single drink. You might drink in moderation and they'll take that and drink to excess. Do some, does someone have a gambling addiction? Maybe playing dice or card games at a home will spark memories of the times where they were doing so well in the casinos and they, they won big bucks and then cause them to go back and go back into gambling and the casinos and then gamble their money away. The third thing is that my liberty can destroy my brother. My liberty can destroy my brother. The story of Ben Roethlisberger continues. In one year later, the story, um, after he, one year later after he was interviewed, he was involved in a serious motorcycle accident. Roethlisberger was riding his motorcycle without a helmet in downtown Pittsburgh when a 62-year-old 62 62 woman failed to yield at an intersection and he was thrown into the windshield of her car. His bike was totaled and paramedics who came on the scene were able to stop the bleeding in his throat just in time to save his life. Yet Roethlisberger sustained fractures to his jaw and sinus cavity, loss of teeth, several chipped teeth, and other facial injuries, which surgeons worked seven hours to repair. After Ben was released from the hospital, he apologized to his fans, family, and team for risking his life and health unnecessarily. In another interview, Ben was no longer focusing on the freedom and right that he had. In the past few days, he says, I've gained a new perspective on life. By the grace of God, I am fortunate to be alive. He also promised that if he ever does ride a motorcycle again, it will certainly be with a helmet. Roethlisberger learned a valuable lesson. He had the freedom to ride his motorcycle without a helmet. He knew it was his right and no one should say otherwise. But with his public statement flaunting his liberty, he endangered his own life and the life of many others. His fans and others who look up to Ben saw his interview and may have been encouraged to be just like him. Not only did he, have it, he affect others, but he ultimately endangered his own life. So my liberties can be destructive. When Paul says, that the weak brother will perish, says that in verse 
11, he says, And because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. So he isn't talking about his salvation because we're still talking about a brother in whom Christ, for whom Christ died. It is a believer, but his fellowship with the Lord is broken. He, he sins against his conscience and now he can become ineffective for the Lord. And Paul is saying this is serious stuff. Paul isn't taking this subject matter lightly and neither should we. I can severely hurt my brother spiritually by my freedom. And why would I do something, why would I want to do something that for, for whom Christ died? And not only that, but I'm, I am sinning against my brother, but not only my brother, but it says that you sin against Christ. That's a very serious problem. When I don't take into, when I don't take into consideration the effects that my liberty have on another believer. So because of my knowledge, I can take my liberty too far and needlessly cause someone to stumble. stumble. We are called to love. And Christ is speaking to us today and saying, why would you take your liberty and use it this way? I saved this man out of idolatry. I saved him out of alcoholism. I died to save this man, but you are destroying your brother for your freedom. You are leading him right back into idolatry. You are puffed up and don't have love. When we stop and realize this, it sheds a whole different light on the subjects of our liberty and on the weaker believer, doesn't it? Can eating meat or drinking wine have such devastating effects? Instead of our liberty, we realize that it's our brother who is in need. Now you have the ability to help him, to show him love. You can build him up and encourage him. You can, show him, you can help him avoid the temptations that you are strong in, but maybe he is weak in. When I think of my rights and my knowledge, I think of myself. But when I think of others, I put my rights aside and I know how to help and love my brother. Love thinks of others. Love will put others' needs above your own. Does that mean that I need to give up all my liberties, all my rights? Philippians 2, 3 through 4 says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceits, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also the interests of others. And that is Paul's example to us too. He concludes in the last verse, he says, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. He says, I won't do it, I won't touch it. If it's going to cause my brother to stumble, that's too much. And he would willingly give up meat for the rest of his life if it meant stumbling his brother. Paul had the knowledge, but he demonstrates love. He's looking out for the interest of his brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not about what you can or cannot do, but it's about how far will love take you. What would, what would love do for my struggling brother? 
It's not what I'm about what I'm allowed to do, but what love allows me to do for my family in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for the example that you, you give, Lord. And Lord, we thank you for your clear direction throughout the word of God, Lord. We, we pray, Lord, that we would not be proud and puffed up with knowledge, that we would always think of loving our brothers. Lord, that love would trump everything, that we would not only think of our own interests, but the interests of others, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you would give us wisdom on how to apply that in our lives as we go through daily, um, as we uh, encounter issues like this, Lord, and pray that we would never stumble a brother who is weak. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.